President Kimball has asked that I speak to you at this time. This being the first general conference in the bicentennial year of the United States of America, I have been doing much pondering and contemplating of this event as it relates to the gospel and the great plan of life and salvation. We are all reading and hearing much concerning the events connected with this, the founding of this country, and with the modern devices available today, the news media reaches throughout the world, and we are all aware of our, our interrelationship inter with one another's countries. We would expect every man to be loyal to his native land, the land in which he was born, the land in which he lives, works, and rears his family. I think the words of Sir Walter Scott in the lay of the last minstrel, Reads there a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, This is my own, my native land, whose heart ne'er within him burned as home his footsteps he hath turned from wandering in a foreign land. During the last few weeks, I, with President Kimball and others of the official party, have had the privilege of attending area conferences in New Zealand, Australia, and the beautiful islands of the South Sea. New Zealand claims to be a choice land and favored by the Lord. The night before we left Tahiti, one of the brethren said to me, Well, tomorrow we'll be driven out of the Garden of Eden. We were most favorably impressed by the beauties of the countries wherever we went. And Sister Tanner said, We surely live in a beautiful world. Yes, all countries are greatly blessed by the Lord, and each is uniquely different in its beauties, its people, customs, and traditions. Today, however, I should like to confine my remarks to a discussion concerning the Western Hemisphere, and particularly to the United States of America, and to point out the destiny of America in the Lord's eternal plan. The discovery of America was not an accident. The event had been foreordained in the eternal councils. The prophets of old had it in view. Jacob foresaw it when he blessed his son Joseph, calling him a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Moses, too, made promises to the tribe of Joseph, whose land was to be precious for the things of heaven and of earth, and who would push the people together to the ends of the earth. Now, these are just some of the biblical prophecies. And we have the Book of Mormon record which tells us that the Jaredites, who were the first to come to America, they came at the time of confusion of languages during the building of the Tower of Babel. Just as Noah was directed, this people was instructed to build ships to carry them on the waters. When all was in readiness, they boarded their vessels and set forth into the sea, commending themselves unto the Lord their God. The account states, And when they had set their feet upon the shores of the Promised Land, they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land, and did humble themselves before the Lord, and did shed tears of joy before the Lord because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. Then six hundred years before the birth of Christ, a prophet by the name of Lehi, who had been crying repentance under the inhabitants of Jerusalem, was commanded by the Lord to depart with his family into the wilderness. Because of things which he had testified concerning the wickedness of the people, and the pending destruction of Jerusalem, he was mocked, scorned, and the people sought to take his life. Then, in obedience to the Lord's instructions, he departed with his family and others after a period in the wilderness. 
they were instructed too to build a ship and to sail for the promised land. We read, And it came to pass that after we had sailed for the space of many days, we did arrive at the promised land. And we went forth upon the land and did pitch our tents, and we did call it the promised land." Unquote. While in the wilderness, Nephi, the son of Lehi, was permitted to see in vision the things that transpired concerning the destiny of America, the promised land. He said, And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles, who was separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God, that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren, who were in the promised land. This, as we know, refers to Christopher Columbus, who was impelled by the Spirit of God to cross the ocean for the rediscovery of America, thus assisting in the furthering of God's purposes. Columbus himself, in a letter to the Spanish hierarchy, wrote, Our Lord unlocked my mind, sent me upon the sea, and gave me fire for the deed. Those who heard of my enterprise called it foolish, mocked me, and laughed. But who can doubt but that the Holy Ghost inspired me?" Unquote. During the voyage, and after weeks of sailing, with no sign of land, mutiny raised its head. Finally, Columbus promised the captains of the Pinta and the Nina, both of whom wanted to, return, to turn back, that if no land was sighted in 48 hours, they could turn back. Then he went to his cabin and, in his words, prayed mightily to the Lord. On October the 12th, the very next day, they sighted land. Nephi in vision also saw the coming of the pilgrims who came to escape religious persecution. He foresaw the coming to America of peoples from many nations, their wars and contentions. As Nephi said, they did humble themselves before the Lord. The power of God was with them, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those who were gathered together against them in battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had come out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. Thus the American colonies attained their independence and set up the government of the United States, all under the divine intervention of God in preparing this land for its destiny, its divine destiny. At this point we pay tribute to those great men who accepted and met the great challenge to establish a constitution for the government of this so-called new land. That this, too, was divinely inspired is attested by the word of the Lord when he said, According to the laws and constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles, that every man may act in doctrine and in principle, pertaining to futurity, according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Therefore it is not right that any man should be in bondage to one to another. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up under this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood." Unquote. No constitution on earth has endured longer than this one. We seek and usually find the answers to today's questions in this document of yesterday. 
It was and is a miracle. Both Washington and Madison referred to it as such. It is an inspired document written under the guidance of the Lord. James Madison, commonly called the father of the Constitution, recognized this inspiration and gave credit to the guardianship and guidance of the Almighty, being whose power regulates the destiny of nations, whose blessings have been so conspicuously displayed to this rising republic. Unquote. We believe that the Constitution was brought about by God to ensure a nation where liberty could abound and where his gospel could flourish. Joseph Smith said, The Constitution of the United States is a glorious standard. It is founded in the wisdom of God. It is a heavenly banner. Unquote. Among other things, the Constitution guaranteed the religious freedom that allowed the Reformation to continue and flourish. Many of these great reformers stated that their, that their effort was to reassert the basic Christian principles of the, and teachings of the Bible, but they acknowledged that they possessed no authority to administer the ordinances of the Church or to reestablish the original Church of Jesus Christ. Luther said, Christianity has ceased to exist among those who would have re preserved it. Roger Williams, founder of the Baptist Church in America, said, There is no regularly constituted church on earth, nor any person qualified to administer any church ordinances. We believe that both freedom and the continuing reformation that flourished here occurred in preparation for the restoration from heaven of the full gospel of Jesus Christ. The restoration began in the United States of America in the 1820s, through the instrumentality of the Prophet Joseph Smith, who was chosen by the Lord and who, through personal manifestations from heavenly messengers, received pertinent records which contained the authentic record of early American people and God's dealings with them. He received the priesthood and authority to reestablish the Church of Jesus Christ in these latter days. At the time of this restoration, God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ actually appeared to Joseph Smith as they had appeared to leaders of previous dispensations. They announced to him that Christ's Church would be reestablished upon the earth, with the restoration of the same principles and ordinances and organization which existed in the primitive Church, from which there had been an apostasy, as documented by reputable evidence. This restoration was the greatest event in the history of mankind since the birth, death, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. Significantly, the early Americans to whom we have referred were aware of the birth, death, and resurrection of the Savior because they saw the same signs and wonders as those in the Old World, foretelling the coming of the Lord, His life, mission, and subsequent death and resurrection. Referring to the same early Americans, the Lord said, as recorded in the New Testament, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd." Unquote. In the Book of Mormon we have a beautiful account of Christ's visit to these other sheep following his resurrection. When they heard his voice and recognized him as he showed his, the nails prints in his hands and feet, we know that these were the other sheep, because he said unto them, Ye are they of whom I said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He taught them the gospel. He instituted the sacrament 
and ordained disciples. He gave authority to confer the Holy Ghost, heal the sick. He healed the sick and blessed their little ones. He prayed unto the Father for them. We read, The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus Christ speak unto the Father. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father." Unquote. Now what of America's future? How can we best show our appreciation to God for these marvelous blessings of freedom, of a place where his true and everlasting gospel was restored, of the preparation and divine guidance in every event leading to that most significant event? We must remember what the Lord told the Jaredites when they were first brought to the la- this land. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it, it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ, who hath been manifest by the things which we have written." Unquote. Dr. Lo- Lo- John Lord, many years ago in a volume entitled Beacon Lights of History, referring to the, the discovery of America, said after speaking of her great potential, The world has witnessed many powerful empires which have passed away and left not a rack behind. What remains of the antediluvian world? What remains of Nineveh, of Babylon, of Thebes, of Tyre, of Carthage, those great centers of wealth and power? What remains of Roman greatness even, except in laws and literature and renovated statues? What is the simple story of all the ages? Industry, wealth corruption, decay, and ruin. What conservative power has been strong enough to arrest the ruin of the nations of antiquity? Now, if this is to be the destiny of America, an unbounded material growth followed by corruption and ruin, then Columbus has simply extended the realm for men to try material experiments, make New York a second Carthage, and Boston a second Athens, and Philadelphia a second Antioch and Washington, a second Rome, and we simply repeat the old experiments. But has America no higher destiny than to repeat the old experiments and improve upon them and become rich and powerful? Has she no higher and nobler mission? If America has a great mission to declare and to fulfill, she must put forth altogether new forces, and these not material, and these alone will save her and save the world. The real glory of America is to be something entirely different from that of which the ancients boasted, and this is to be moral and spiritual, that which the ancients lacked." We are all part of America's future, and our job is to learn and benefit from the past and to go forward in righteousness, keeping the commandments of God. In this connection, the prophet Lehi said, Wherefore this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to to the commandments which he has given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be be because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, curse shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever." As we pray daily to God for guidance, We should also 
make the same plea as George Washington did in his prayer for our country. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people the multitudes brought out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue with the spirit of wisdom those whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be peace and justice at home, that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness. In the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail, all of which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. We encourage our people to be good, loyal, and law-abiding citizens. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Also, it is our duty to seek diligently for and support and uphold good, honest, honorable, and wise representatives to govern us. Let me reiterate the message left to the saints nearly 60 years ago at the General Conference in April of 1917, when Elder Anthony W. Ivins, after discussing religious liberty and the Constitution, said, I feel authorized here this afternoon to say that these liberties which have come to men, both religious and civil, have not been established by the Lord to be destroyed, but that they are here to remain until the liberty shall prevail from the rivers to the ends of the earth until God's kingdom shall be established among men and his will done upon earth as it is done in heaven, until the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man shall be recognized and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ, who shall reign as Prince of Peace." Now I bear testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God here upon the earth, with the Lord directing through our prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball, May I urge everyone everywhere to help bring to pass righteousness in whatever country you may reside by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. If you are active members of the Church, you will know what they are. If you are not, may I invite you to avail yourselves of the opportunity to investigate and gain a knowledge and a testimony for yourselves that the gospel in its fullness has been restored and with authority to administer the ordinances thereof and is here upon the earth. Only as we accept and live the teachings of the gospel can the destiny which God planned for America be realized and the world united in peace and brotherhood. That this may speedily come to pass, I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Centuries ago, when Jesus taught his disciples at Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, He said, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It is the precious privilege of Latter-day Saints to live, meet, and worship in the name of the Savior of mankind and to enjoy his sustaining 
and regenerating spirit in every facet and dimension of their lives. Since last October, Sister Worthlin and I have traveled many thousands of miles over Central Europe, Scandinavia, and Finland, working with the 11 mission presidents and the eight stake presidents who preside in those areas. Here we have learned to know over 1,500 missionaries who radiate and communicate the reality of the truth that Jesus is in their midst. They have asked me to express, to express their great love and appreciation for you at home. If you could hear them bear their testimonies, you would literally tingle with the enthusiasm and love for the gospel truth. Neither must we neglect to mention our servicemen in Europe. To most of them, the gospel of Jesus Christ means everything. They have caught the spirit that is present where and when two or three are gathered together in the name of the Master. What the gospel does for them is tremendously and unbelievably wonderful. These young men and their families are, are a tribute to the Church, an inspirational force. They are among the most devoted of all our members. They have donated thousands of dollars and incalculable time and effort toward the building of chapels in Europe, chapels that most of them may never see since, the, since they most likely will be gone home or elsewhere before the chapels are built and dedicated. The crowning glory of the work of the kingdom in Europe, however, is the thousands of faithful members who work tirelessly and joyfully both to live the gospel and to share it with others. The charge and the responsibility these unselfishly committed saints have taken upon themselves has evolved as portrayed in the revelation given through the Prophet Joseph Smith to James Colville, who had been a Baptist minister for 40 years. The first step in the process of becoming a Latter-day Saint Brother Colville was told, as recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, is truly to accept the gospel of which the Lord says, And this is my gospel, repentance and baptism by water, and then, by, and then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which showeth all things and teacheth the peaceable things of the kingdom. Following his acceptance of the gospel, Brother Colville was charged to do what is the uncompromising obligation of all of us today. For the Lord says, And if you do this, I have prepared thee for a greater work. Thou shalt preach the fullness of my gospel, which I have sent forth in these last days, the covenant which I have sent forth to recover my people, which are of the house of Israel. And here is the promise made to Elder Colville. And it shall come to pass that power shall rest upon thee. Thou shalt have great faith. I will be with thee and go before thy face. What is said to here to James Colville in this dispensation when the Church was only nine months old applies with equal force to us now and is a remarkable and powerful reiteration of the promise made by the Savior during his earthly ministry, his pledge that he will be in our midst when two or three are gathered together 
in his name is a wonderful declaration of his unbounded love for each of us and assures us of his presence in our church services, in our individual lives, and in the intimate circle of our families. When I say Jesus meant his presence to be felt in the intimate circle of each of our lives, maybe it be depicted in the lives of two sisters, friends of ours, who live in two widely separated stakes. One sister married out of the church. She had hoped to convert her husband and then be married and sealed in the temple. She had developed one of the most lovely and spiritual personalities. Her husband, however, has never caught the spirit nor acknowledged the truth of the gospel and has been, as, and has been a passive influence in the religious life of his family. Nevertheless, this sister set a beautiful example for a family and drew the children to accompany her in the performance of their church duties and responsibilities. She and the children, despite what could have been a ready excuse for neglect and indifference, exemplified the admonition of Jesus when he said, Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The second sister married a fine man who was a Latter-day Saint. As the years sped by, they carelessly omitted what they had at first intended conscientiously to do, worship together in the name of Jesus, that he might be in the midst of their family activities. Although always admiring the Church and its principles, they had forgotten that they were now in the fact the salt of the earth that had lost its savor. In a conversation about their children, the second sister said to the first, Why have your children turned out so well? And why are they so active in the church, despite the fact that you married out of the church? The first sister replied, I took my children with me to Sunday school and sacrament meeting. Surprised, the second sister said, I sent mine. And the first sister answered with greater emphasis, but I took mine. Hers was a case, as Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And this can be true for all of us, wherever we may be, at home or elsewhere. On another occasion, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Unless we open the door and permit him to come into our lives, he can't enter into our midst. Mere knowledge in itself may be, but it is not necessarily power. Knowledge is not motivation, neither is logic. That the springs of human action are inherently in the feelings, not the intellect, and that conduct, conduct generates feeling is set forth in the Doctrine and Covenants in these words, And whoso receiveth you there I will be also, for I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Only in accepting our Savior and doing his will do we acquire the feeling to do right. If we break the commandments, we get a feeling for that too. This explains why parents' hearts may be broken and heads bowed in shame because of the sins and waywardness of their sons and daughters. They are puzzled and perplexed. They say, 
We brought them up to be righteous boys and girls, and our family has always been a good family. We didn't teach them to behave like this. The children learned all the precepts, but precepts do not necessarily furnish the will and desire to do right. Indeed, ignorance is not the only cause of sin and deplorable conduct. Fundamental to most wrongdoing is a lack of desire, the absence of a strong motive or the right influence, and a deficiency in living the precepts. Individuals who do right and hunger and thirst after righteousness get and keep alive through their actions the feeling to do right. Inherent in the first principles of the gospel is the desire principle, the desire to love God and fellow men with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. To attain these heights, each of us must work in harmony with God's will and create a spiritual climate that will bring Jesus into the midst of our lives, and then we must continue to live with an eye single to his glory. This conviction is clearly demonstrated in the lives of our great mission presidents, servicemen, missionaries, and devoted church members. What I am trying to say about the Savior's being in our midst, whether we be two or three or many, is clearly portrayed in Paul's eloquent description of the process of attaining spiritual perfection. He said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. May I restate for the sake of emphasis what these inspired writings contain for each of us. Paul rejoiced in the fact that what he had told the Thessalonians was not meaningless words to them, for they had listened with great interest, and that that what was taught them produced a powerful desire for righteousness in their lives. He was explicit in stressing that the Holy Spirit also gave them full assurance that what was taught was true. He did not hesitate to say that his life, as well, was further proof to them of the truthfulness of the message. Paul was pleased that the gospel message had been received with such joy and happiness, despite many hardships. Finally, he noted what must have been their crowning achievement, that they were inspiring examples to all their neighbors, and that from them the word of the Lord had extended to others everywhere, far beyond their boundaries. Paul paid tribute to them when he told them that wherever he traveled, he found people telling him about their remarkable good works and faith in God. In this bicentennial year, it is well for us to be reminded again and again that knowing and keeping the divine laws and commandments have always generated faith, righteous living, and inspiration in our people. I recall when the saints settled in a new area. They were troubled about how permanently they were to build their houses. They had often moved from place to place. When they asked the prophet Joseph Smith about this, he said, Build as if you are going to stay forever. The founders of our country, as we believe, divinely inspired, build our nation to endure. And our church leaders today never for a moment lose sight of their sacred mission. They are building for us, for those to follow, 
for the future, for eternity. There is a great lesson to be learned by all of us in a careful study of our history. The success of our church may be attributed to our faith in God and to our being led under the inspired guidance of strong and devoted leaders, never taking the shortcuts and keeping Jesus and his divine teachings dynamically in our midst. It is my privilege to testify to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the motivating leadership of our great prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball, and to the power and appeal of his exemplary, shining life, and to the divine calling of the brethren, and to the strength and nobility to be found in, good li in the good lives of thousands of Latter-day Saints throughout the world. Wherever two or three of us are gathered together, I pray that the Savior may be in the midst of us because of our righteousness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some weeks ago, a bewildered father asked, Why is it I seem to be able to communicate with everyone except my own son? I responded with, What do you mean you can't communicate with your own son? It's just that whenever I try to tell him something, he tunes me out, he replied. During our private discussion which followed, and very often since I have concluded that perhaps one of the principal reasons we fail to relate appropriately with family members is because we fail to apply some of the basics of personal communications. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, we read, But to do good and communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Communication in the family will often be a sacrifice because we are expected to use our time, our means, our talent, and our patience to impart, share, and understand. Too often we use communications as periods and occasions to tell, dictate, plead, or threaten. Nowhere in the broadest sense should communication in the family be used to impose, command, or embarrass. To be effective, family communication must be an exchange of feelings and information. Doors of communication will swing open in the home if members will realize time and participation on the part of all are necessary ingredients. In family discussions, differences should not be ignored, but should be weighed and evaluated calmly. One's point or opinion usually is not as important as healthy, continuing relationship. Courtesy and respect in listening and responding during discussions are basic in proper family dialogue. As we learn to participate together in meaningful associations, we are able to convey our thoughts of love, dependence, and interest. When we're inclined to give up in despair in our efforts to communicate because other family members have failed to respond, 
perhaps we would do well not to give up, but to rather to give and take in our conversations. How important it is to know how to disagree with another's point of view without being disagreeable. How important it is to have discussion periods ahead of decisions. Joan Stevens wrote, I have learned that the head does not hear anything until the heart has listened, and that what the heart knows today, the head will understand tomorrow. Let me share with you seven basic suggestions for more effective family communication. Number one, a willingness to sacrifice. Be the kind of a family member who is willing to take the time to be available. Develop the ability and self-discipline to think of other family members and their communication needs ahead of your own. A willingness to prepare for the moment, the sharing moment, the teaching moment. Sad is the day when a daughter is heard to say, my mother gives me everything except herself. Too early and too often we sow the seeds of, can't you see I'm busy and don't bother me now. When we convey the attitude of go away, don't bother me now, Family members are apt to go elsewhere or even isolate themselves in silence. All family members on some occasion must be taken on their own terms so they will be willing to come, share, and ask. It takes personal sacrifice to communicate when conditions are right for the other person. Even during mealtime, after a date, after a hurt, a victory, a disappointment, or when someone wants to share a confidence. One must be willing to forego personal convenience to invest time in establishing a firm foundation for family communication. When communication in the family seems to be bogging down, each individual should look to himself for the remedy. If we would know true love and understanding one for another, we must realize that communication is more than a sharing of words. It is a wise sharing of emotions, feelings, and concerns. It is the sharing of oneself totally. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Number two, a willingness to set the stage. The location, setting, or circumstances should be comfortable, private, and conversation conducive. Effective communications have been shared in a grove of trees, on the mount, by the sea, in a family home evening, during a walk, in a car, during a vacation, a hospital visit, on the way to school, or during the game. When the stage is set, we must be willing to let the other family member be front and center 
as we appropriately respond. Months and years after the score of a baseball game is long forgotten, the memory of having been there all alone with Dad will never dim. I'll not soon forget a 10-year-old girl excitingly telling me she had just ridden in the car with her daddy all the way from Salt Lake City to Provo and back. Was the radio on, I asked. Oh, no, she responded. All daddy did was listen and talk to me. She had her daddy all to herself in a setting she'll not soon forget. Let the stage be set whenever the need is there. Let the stage be set whenever the other person is ready. Number three, a willingness to listen. Listening is more than being quiet. Listening is much more than silence. Listening requires undivided attention. The time to listen is, some, is when someone needs to be heard. The time to deal with a person with a problem is when he has the problem. The time to listen is the time when our interest and love are vital to the one who seeks our ear, our heart, our help, and our empathy. We should all increase our ability to ask comfortable questions and then listen intently and naturally. Listening is a tied-in part of loving. How powerful are the words, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Number four, a willingness to vocalize feelings. How important it is to be willing to voice one's thoughts and feelings. Yes, how important it is to be able to converse on the level of each family member. Too often we are inclined to let family members assume how we feel toward them. Often wrong conclusions are reached. Very often we could have performed better had we known how family members felt about us and what they expected. John Powell shares this touching experience. The day my father died, I was in a small hospital room holding his hand. He slumped back. I lowered his head gently on the pillow and said, It's all over, Mom. Dad is dead. Mom startled me. I will never know why these were her first words to me after his death. My mother said, Oh, he was so proud of you. He loved you so much. Later, while a doctor was verifying death, I was leaning against the wall in the far corner of the room, crying softly. A nurse came over to me and put a comforting arm around me. I couldn't talk through my tears. I wanted to tell her, I'm not crying because my father is dead. I'm crying because my father never told me that he was proud of me. He never told me that he loved me. Of course, I was expected to know these things. I was expected to know the great part I had played in his life and the great part I occupied of his heart, but he never told me. 
How significant are God's words when he took the time to vocalize his feelings with, This is my beloved son. Yes, even the powerful communication, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Often parents communicate most effectively with their children by the way they listen to and address each other. Their conversations showing gentleness and love are heard by our ever-alert, impressionable children. We must learn to communicate effectively, not only by voice, but by tone, feeling, glances, mannerisms, and total personality. Too, able, too often when we are not able to converse with a daughter or wife, we wonder what is wrong with her, when we should be wondering what is wrong with our methods. A meaningful smile, an appropriate pat on the shoulder, and a warm handshake are all important. Silence isolates. Strained, silent periods cause wonderment, hurt, and most often, wrong conclusions. God knows the full impact of continuing communication as he admonishes us to pray constantly. He, too, has promised to respond as we relate to him effectively. Number five, a willingness in the family to avoid judgment. Try to be understanding and not critical. Don't display shock, alarm, or disgust with others' comments or observations. Don't react violently. Work within the framework of a person's free agency. Convey the bright and optimistic approach. There is hope. There is a way back. There is a possibility for better understanding. Let a common ground for personal decision be developed. Neither do I condemn thee and go thy way and sin no more are words that are just as gentle and effective today as when they were first uttered. Avoid imposing your values on others. When we can learn to deal with issues without involving personalities and at the same time avoid bias and emotions, we are on our way to effective family communications. When a family member makes a decision which may be inadequate or improper, do we have the ability and the patience to convey the attitude that we don't agree with his decision, but he has the right of choice and is still a loved member of the family? It is easy to point out mistakes and pass judgment. Sincere compliments and praise come much harder from most of us. It takes a real maturity for a parent to apologize to a child for an error. An honest apology often makes the son or daughter feel surprisingly warm toward the mother or father or brother and or sister. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and also able to bridle the whole body. Number six, a willingness to maintain confidences. 
Be worthy of trust, even in trivial questions and observations. Weighty questions and observations will only follow if we have been worthy with the trivial. Treat innermost trusts and concerns with respect. Build on deserved trusts. Individuals who are blessed to have a relationship with someone to whom they can confidently talk and trust are fortunate indeed. Who is to say that a family trust is not greater than a community trust? Number seven, a willingness to practice patience. Patience in communication is that certain ingredient of conduct we hope others will exhibit toward us when we fail to measure up. Our own patience is developed when we are patient with others. Be patient, be sober, be temperate, have patience, faith, hope, and charity. I get sick and tired of listening to your complaints, and I have told you a thousand times are but two of many often repeated family quotations that indicate patience is gone and channels of communication are plugged. It takes courage to communicate patiently. We need constantly to express pride, hope, and love on a most sincere basis. Each of us needs to avoid coming through as one who has given up and has become totally wearying in trying. The correction of family members in front of others is to be avoided. Much more notice is taken in private conversation. When family members tune each other out, communication is not taking place. Words spoken are unheard, unwanted, and resisted when we fail to understand the basics for proper interchange. Each must be willing to do his part to improve since the family unit is the basic foundation of the Church. Proper communication will always be a main ingredient for building family solidarity and permanence. I pray our Heavenly Father will help us to communicate more effectively in the home through a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to listen, a willingness to vocalize feelings, a willingness to avoid judgment, a willingness to maintain confidences, and a willingness to practice patience. How forcible are right words shared at the right moment with the right person. May our gracious and kind Heavenly Father help us in our needs and desires for more effective family communication. Communication can help build family unity if we will work at it and sacrifice for it. For this goal, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.